take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Numbers today. Uh, One more in our studies of Numbers before we break for a few weeks to look directly at texts that touch on the incarnation of our Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, Today, beginning in Numbers 26, and a slight expansion, not a correction, expansion to your bulletin. We will actually be covering two chapters today, though this is one of those instances where I'm going to ask you to do a bit of homework on your own. I'm only going to read just a few of the verses in chapter 26, not that they're not important, but for the sake of time, we'll read a few of those. I want to ask you to read them uh, on your own later. We will read the entirety of chapter 27, and when you go back later and you read 26, what you will find is a census of Israel. First, a census of the warring tribes of Israel, and then a census of the Levitical tribes of Israel with a summary statement at the end. We're going to pick up in Numbers chapter 26, verse 1. I'll guide you through the few verses that we're reading, and then we will continue in the entire chapter uh, 27. Before we read this word of God together, let's go to him and seek his blessing on our study. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the word that you have given to your people. We thank you that you have given it by the work of your Holy Spirit, and we pray that that same Holy Spirit would be at work in the lives of your children as we hear it. Guide and direct our hearts and thoughts. Help us to see and know more of our Savior because of your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it, beginning to read in Numbers chapter 26. After the plague, the Lord said to Moses and to Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel from 20 years old and upward by their father's houses, all in Israel who were able to go to war. And Moses and Eleazar, the priest, spoke with them in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, take a census of the people from 20 years old and upward as the Lord commanded Moses. Now look with me down at verse 51. Verse 51. This was the list of the people of Israel. 601,730. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Among these the land shall be divided for inheritance, according to the number of names. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Every tribe shall be given its inheritance in proportion to its list. But the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. Their inheritance shall be divided, according to lot, between the larger and the smaller. Now verse 63, reading to the end of chapter 27. These were those listed by Moses and Eleazar the priest who listed the people of Israel in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. But among these there was not one listed by Moses and Aaron the priest who had listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai. For the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one of them was left except Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun. Then drew near the daughters of Zelophehad, the son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, from the clans of Manasseh, the son of Joseph. The names of his daughters were Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. 
And they stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs of all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, saying, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among the company of those who gathered themselves together against the Lord in the company of Korah, but he died for his own sin, and he had no sons. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. Moses brought their case before the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, the daughters of Zelophehad are right. You shall give them possession of an inheritance among their father's brothers and transfer the inheritance of their father to them. And you shall speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a man dies and has no son, then you shall transfer his inheritance to his daughter. And if he has no daughter, then you shall give his inheritance to his brothers. And if he has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to his father's brothers. And if his father has no brothers, then you shall give his inheritance to the nearest kinsman of his clan, then he shall possess it. And it shall be for the people of Israel a statute and a rule, as the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord said to Moses, Go up into this mountain of Abarim, and see the land that I have given to the people of Israel. When you have seen it, you also shall be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. Because you rebelled against my word in the wilderness of Zin when the congregation quarreled, failing to uphold me as holy at the waters before their eyes. These are the waters of Meribah, of Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar the priest and all the congregation, and you shall commission him in their sight. You shall invest him with some of your authority, and all the congregation of the people, people of Israel may obey. And he shall stand before Eleazar the priest, who shall inquire for him by the judgment of the Urim before the Lord. At his word they shall go out, and at his word they shall come in, both he and all the people of Israel with him, the whole congregation. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and made him stand before Eleazar the priest and the whole congregation, and he laid his hands on him and commissioned him in the Lord as the Lord directed through Moses. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. I don't know about you, but in my family, it was my grandmother uh, who served as the unofficial historian. Uh, she was the one who kept all those mental records. She remembered who married whom. She remembered which of my cousins lived where, even when I didn't remember that they were my cousins. Uh, and in her home, every Thanksgiving vacation in North Carolina, I would spend time uh, rifling through boxes and albums of old yellowed photographs that Grandma knew every person in them. Well, today, family record keeping is really big business. It's not boxes of photographs anymore. Uh, it's Ancestry.com, last year posting over a billion dollars in revenue. A billion dollars. They claim to have access to digitized birth and death records from over 80 different countries. They claim to have compiled 130 million family trees. All of it, they say, in an effort to help their customers unlock new understanding and meaningful connections. 
long before there were digitized death records, God's people made sense of where they were going by remembering where they had come from. Notice that Numbers chapter 26 opens, it begins by telling us that the Lord commanded that a census should be taken of the people. This is actually the second census in the book for those of you who are just visiting with us today or picking up midway. Uh, the first census happened 38 years ago. It happened at the base of Mount Sinai. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 1. And now, at the end of their wilderness wanderings on the plains of Moab, the Lord tells them to number their tribes all over again. He tells them to organize their families because he's about to give them exactly what they'd all been waiting for. Our text today, actually both of these chapters, is unique in that it stands at a crossroads. It, it encourages God's people to look backward in order to move forward. Lord willing, that's what we're going to do today. We're going to look in this passage, in these chapters, first at a new old people, secondly at a new old hope, and thirdly at a new old leader. People, hope, and a leader. Well, the people are the focus of the entirety of chapter 26. In many ways, this second census uh, is a mirror image of the first one. Chapter 26, verse 2, reads like a shorter summary of chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. In both places, the main focus is on all those in Israel, all the men, aged 20 and upward, that is, all those who are able to go to war. So this is not just a numbering of the people, this is a numbering of the troops. This is a military roll call, if you will. In both instances, at both uh, censuses, uh, the Lord is concerned that the people would be ready by numbering uh, the armies of God that will go in and take control of the land God is giving them. So there are some similarities here. But there are also important indicators that, that this people is a new people. They are separate from the generation that came before them. The first indicator is that opening phrase in verse 1. It says, after the plague, the Lord spoke to Moses and to Eliezer. That's the setting for this census. It is after the plague that broke out at the incident of Baal of Peor. It is after the anger of the Lord burned among the camp and consumed 24,000 of the people of Israel. It left a significant gap in the nation. And if you remember the book of Numbers, you know that it wasn't the first time. There was a plague after the incident, the rebellion at Korah. There was a plague when the people craved meat in the wilderness. There was death in the camp when the spies brought back their bad report. And as you go through the book, over and over, chunk by chunk, the entirety of the book of Numbers sometimes feels like it reads like a somber report of a shrinking population. We expect there to be nothing left by the time the people get to the promised land. And yet, even after this final plague, lo and behold, verse 51, tells us that the total number of the people was 601,730. That is the number of the fighting men only. That is merely 1,800 souls shy of the total number that we counted in Numbers chapter 1. In other words, the Lord has not merely punished the generation in the wilderness, he has replaced them. He has raised up an entire new generation, a new people to take the place of those who had rejected his promises. This is a new people. 
Our second indication that they're new comes at the end of the chapter, verse 64. It says, among these, there was not one of those listed by Moses and Aaron the priests, but listed the people of Israel in the wilderness of Sinai, for the Lord had said of them, they shall die in the wilderness. Not one was left except Caleb and Joshua. This is a new people. This is proof that 40 years of sin and judgment have not been able to overturn God's promises. The Lord has raised up a new generation of people who are ready to receive exactly what their fathers rejected. This is a new people. But they're not really a new, new people. They're very much a new, old people. Here we need to mention that vast swath of text that we didn't read, but that you're going to read later. Because when you go back and you read chapter 26 for yourself or in your family later today, what you're going to find is a very significant difference between the census in chapter 26 and the census in chapter 1. In chapter 1, the nation was numbered according to the names of the tribal leaders who came with them out of the land of slavery in Egypt. So you may remember some of those names. There was Elizer the son of Shedeir, and Shalumiel, the son of Zerishadai. There was Eliab, and Elishema, and Abidan, and Ahiezer. There were six more other contemporary leaders for the people. In chapter 26, those chiefs are nowhere to be found. Of course, they also died with the older generation. They were wasted in the wilderness like the rest of them. And the Lord certainly provided new leaders for his people, but even those new leaders are almost nowhere to be found in many cases. In fact, here in chapter 26, instead of naming the nation according to their chiefs, this chapter names them according to their ancestors. The families are numbered almost as a genealogy slash census slash military conscription. They're all three rolled in together. They're numbered according to names of men who lived and died in many cases hundreds of years before this people ever took their first breath. One example, verse 23, the sons of Issachar are numbered according to Tola and Puva and Jashub and Shimron, 64,300 people. But you know, the last time all those names showed up in the same place was Genesis chapter 46. That's where we find the list of the immediate sons and grandsons who followed Jacob down into Egypt in the first place. You can read the others. When you do, you'll find that with a very few notable and infamous exceptions, the tribes are listed according to ancient names instead of contemporary ones. I know that some people get excited about genealogies, other people's not, not so much. But what it means for us as we're studying this today, what it means is that the Lord is counting this nation and he is rooting their identity in a people of the past. It's true, the Lord has raised up a new generation, a new Israel, and yet this Israel stands on the promises that were given to their fathers, to their grandfathers, to other family members and forefathers long before them, then the Lord is not going to allow this new generation to imagine that they are the first in God's dealings with humanity. He's not going to allow them to take pride in where they are or where they, what they are receiving from Him. I think this helps us to make sense of that 
strange statement about the Lord giving his people directions for the Passover in the future. Exodus chapter 13, verse 14. The Lord said, in time to come, when your son asks you, what does this service mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And that phrase, that statement, became the identity of each generation, generation after generation. Who are they? We, they would say, are the people the Lord brought out of slavery. A few hundred years down the line, they would teach it to their sons, to their sons' sons after them. We are the people the Lord brought out of slavery. Their daughters were raised in every age with an identity that was independent of their own contemporary significance. Here is an area where I think the church today can take a few pointers from Israel. It's true that when the Lord Jesus established his church, he was doing a new thing, a new, new thing. Right? He took the salvation that came to the Jews and through the Jews, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, I want you to proclaim it to all the Gentiles over all the face of the earth. There's something new happening here. Ephesians chapter 2 says that through Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile alike are joined into one new man in place of the old two that used to exist. That's the language. It's new. There's something new about the church of God in Christ Jesus, and yet it's not something that appeared out of nowhere. It is not disconnected from what came before it. That's why we're spending time reading Numbers of all things, because we realize that our faith is connected to this story and to this people as well. That's why, if you really want to understand what Jesus Christ has done for his people, you have to go back to the sacrifices of the Old Testament that were pointing in his direction. You can't make sense of it without those things. That's why, if you want to know the sins that the Lord finds offensive, if you want to see the kind of obedience that he requires, you have to go back and learn from the Ten Commandments, even if you're not under law, but rather under grace. Perhaps in a different direction, it also means that if you want to know what being a Christian is supposed to look like in the 21st century, you should start with remembering what being a Christian was meant to look like in the 1st century, or the 5th century, or the 16th, or, or any of the other ones in between. The truth is, we tend to think that we're special. We tend to think that our situation is unique. We tend to think that our challenges and our temptations are extraordinary. And so we look at the light speed of advance of things like technology and pluralism. We look at new scientific discoveries and then we look at all this newfangled stuff and we think, well, maybe my Christian walk doesn't have to look like the Christian walk was supposed to look years ago. Of course, you know, uh, Christians in early Rome, that, uh, they had to be prepared to suffer for their faith in Christ. Maybe we can get away with a little less of that. Maybe our convictions don't have to cost us our careers like it might have cost them their livelihood. You know, Christians in the first century, of course, they were expected to give generously to the poor, but we figured it out. We've got NGOs and 501c3s for that sort of thing. But maybe that doesn't weigh so heavily on us anymore. 
You know, Christians in past generations, of course, they were called to live wholly different lives from the entire world around them. They were supposed to be known by their love for one another, by the way that they walked for Christ. They were meant to live in a way different from their neighbors. But now we've convinced ourselves that, you know, I bet our evangelism will be much better, much more effective if we learn how to be winsome and stop being so weird. If we're more like the world, if we're accessible to the world, if, if there's a commonality with us and the unbelievers. Of course there is. The commonality is our sin and our need for salvation. And yet the calling for our lives is exactly the same as it's always been. The point is that in every new generation, the Lord is doing a very old thing. He raises up sons and daughters in Christ, but he unites them to the only body of people that he's ever been saving to himself. The point is that there's no new way to be a Christian because there are no new, new believers. There are only new old ones. That's the first thing we see in this passage. That the Lord has a new, old people, and he takes that new, old people, and he calls them to a new, old hope. The daughters of this man by the name of Zelophehad uh, are a good example of this principle. Here we get in chapter 27, verse 2. It says that these five unmarried women, Mahla, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Terza, these five courageous women stood before Moses and before Eleazar the priest and before the chiefs and all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they made their request. Can you imagine the boldness that that took? They stood as outsiders in this very solemn place and they made their request to the Lord. They said, our father died and we have no brothers and we want the land that belongs to our family. There's a bit more to it than that. We'll come back to the nuance and the details in just a minute. But that's the basic shape. Their request comes in verse 4. Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. And this was a new request. It was so new that Moses had to say, let me get back to you on that. Let me check with the Lord and tell you what he says, because up to this point he hasn't said anything about whether daughters can inherit the property of their fathers. There was no explicit law about this. There are some laws in Leviticus chapter 25 about the year of Jubilee and what happens with tribal allotments when it reverts back to the family of origin. And there's some of that, but nothing about daughters. So this is new. It seems that so far, Israel handled inheritance the way that everybody else handled inheritance in those cultures. At that time, it was only the sons that inherited the property of their family, the estate. The daughters instead received a marriage gift called a dowry. Sometimes it was very large. It was very elaborate. There are accounts in the Old Testament of men who gave their daughters cities as dowries. It could be a very large gift, but once you got that gift, that was it. You were done. You were connected to a new family. You received your husband's inheritance along with him. So when the daughters of Zelophehad come asking about this issue that the Lord has not addressed, Moses had to say, I'm going to have to talk to God about that because it's a new request. Now, to return to the details of what they're asking, we also see that what they are asking is not even for themselves. They're asking that the Lord would would do something like he's always been doing, like he was already prepared to do for all of his people. We can misunderstand this. If we read this lens and we get excited with a modern reading 
uh, of this passage through that lens. I came across one pastor this week that called these five sisters the Bible's first suffragettes. It's catchy, but it, it misses the point, right? The point uh, is not that this text is about women's liberation, right, or a feministic reading of Scripture or some other thing. In fact, the issue in Numbers 27 is not even over whether women would ordinarily inherit property of their fathers. The crux of the issue in chapter 27 is, will the Lord erase his people from his covenantal promises? That's the issue at stake. Go back and read all of verse 4. Why should the name of our father be taken away from his clan because he had no son? Give to us a possession among our father's brothers. It means that even though they're asking for something new, they are very much staking their hope on the same old faithfulness that God has promised long before. Chapter 26 spelled out the principle, said that the land shall be divided according to the names of the tribes by lot. That means that by virtue of just being a part of what God was doing for his people, Zelophehad had a right to expect that the Lord would make good on his promises. He too had come out of bondage in Egypt. He too had wandered through the wasteland looking for an inheritance with the Lord. He too had stood at the base of Mount Sinai when the blood of the covenantal agreement was sprinkled on the congregation and all the people said, all that the Lord has commanded we will do and we will be obedient. He was there. He was a part of God's promises. It's true that these sisters acknowledge that their father failed in that. He did not do all that the Lord commanded. He, he was not obedient. He failed just like every other member of his generation. They all died in the wilderness because they all sinned against the Lord. It says their father wasn't among those notorious rebels, not men like Korah, but he was a sinner like the rest of them. Zelophehad was plagued by doubt and unbelief probably the same way that you are often plagued by doubt and unbelief. But even so, in fresh, new boldness of faith, these women trusted in the firm, old promises of the Lord. They had a new hope in God's old faithfulness to do good to his people. In fact, you notice that their hope outstripped the unbelief of the former generation. When the generation of their father stood outside of Kadesh and they heard the response, the report of the spies, they said, there's no way God can give us what we thought he was going to be able to give us. He can't be trusted to keep his promises. And in fact, even if he could be, we're not sure we want them if it means fighting against giants and pagans to receive them. And now the daughters of Zelophehad are grasping by faith what their father was not able to hold on to. And so when the Lord gave his answer to Moses, he says, these faithful women are right. They're right. They have believed the correct promises. They have trusted in the right person. They have trusted in the God who does not turn away those who turn to him. They're right, Moses. So you, Moses... Make sure they have a portion in the land that should be coming to them. 
And you, Moses, make a statute to pass down to all the generations of the people, proclaiming to them generation after generation after generation that the Lord will not cast off the least of his people. He will keep his promises, even to the least of these. Now, even though the, the specific material promises that God made to the daughters of Zelophehad are different than the material specific promises God makes to you, the same principle at work for them is at work for you in your faith if you're a believer in Christ. The Lord has not promised you a tribal inheritance in the land of Palestine. That's not what this is about. This is about the faithfulness of the Lord. It's about the fact that God's people can trust him. And so in each new generation, God's people need to rekindle that very old hope that the God who makes promises will keep them. He will not allow the smallest jot or tittle of his goodness to be unwritten in your life. Think for a moment about the promises that God has made to you. He has, first of all, promised to forgive your sins through faith in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has promised to make you a part of his family through adoption by faith. He has promised to work ongoing sanctification into your obedience such that the temptations that look too great for your faith today will not always be so. To conform you more to the image of Christ, to make you more like him so that your life is changed in the way that he says your life ought to be changed, he promises that he's going to do that for you. The Lord promises good things to put those who put their hope in his unfailing love. He promises that those whom he has predestined, he will call. And those whom he calls, he will justify. And those whom he justifies, he will glorify. And he's promised that between his choosing and your glorification, every step along the way between you and your eternal inheritance, he will maintain and he will bring to completion. What he calls you to do, day by day, is to put your hope in his unfailing goodness. As a further point here, before we move on, maybe something is a bit of an aside. I think this passage about Zelophehad's daughters also speaks to those who have grown up watching the weak faith of professing Christian parents. When these women came near to God with their request, they had a beautiful blessing. A spiritual maturity, you could call it. The blessing of realizing that even though their father had failed to follow the Lord truly, still the God that he professed was worth following. And not every person raised in a Christian home comes to that conclusion. I don't know everybody who's here or what you've seen in your households growing up. But far too often, children grow up watching the inevitable hypocrisies of their parents, and they determine that the God that their parents claim to believe in must not be a God worth following from here to next Tuesday. If that describes you, if it describes your relationship with your Christian parents, let me say two things. First, cut your parents some slack. Have the maturity to realize that your parents are sinners just like you're a sinner. Have the grace to realize that they are weak in the faith just like you are weak in the faith. 
have the grace to acknowledge they also need the Lord and his goodness. So number one, cut them some slack. Number two, do not judge the goodness of the Lord according to the sins of your parents. Let these daughters be your example. The God who is more gracious than your parents deserve will also be gracious to you if you trust in him. Lamentation says that his mercies are new every morning, and it's true. But they're just the same old mercies, new for each next generation. We're just experiencing the same things. There's a new old hope that the Lord calls his people to. And finally, he provides them with a new old leader. Now, this is the second half of chapter 7, where we find that Moses is reminded that he is going to die. Even Moses. Just like Aaron, his brother, just like Miriam before him, just like the rest of their generation, Moses is going to die because even Moses has broken faith with the Lord. Even Moses has not upheld the glory of God in the eyes of the people. Even Moses trusted in himself when he should have trusted in Yahweh. And because of his sin, though he's not cast off spiritually or eternally, because of his sin, the shadow of death is steadily advancing over his remaining years. What would you ask the Lord for? if you were in Moses' shoes at just this moment. The Lord says, Moses, it's it's almost over. You also are going to die for your sin. What would you ask for? Would you ask for a little bit more time? Would you ask for a second chance, Lord, can I have a mulligan on leading the people? I, I promise I'll help them to think better of you next time. Would you simply plead God's mercy and ask that his sentence of death be removed, that you too could experience the good things he has for his people? Actually, Deuteronomy tells us that he did ask for that, though not here. Moses asked that he also would be able to cross the Jordan with the rest of the Israelites, that he would be able to set foot in this land that he'd been laboring toward for 40 long years. And in response, the Lord says, no. He rebukes Moses. He says, don't even talk to me about this again. Don't raise the issue. So no surprise there. We find that Moses was a man just like you are. He was also concerned for his earthly participation in the things of God. But here, at just this moment, when the nation first begins to turn their preparations to the land across the river, Moses does not pray for himself. Instead, he prays for God's people. Chapter 27, verse 15. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. You see, Moses knows that the people will need a leader. They'll need a new kind of leader, actually a leader different than he was a leader. And so for all of his wonderful things and all of his spiritual direction, the language that Moses uses in verse 15 has much more of a militaristic bent to it. When he says, appoint a man who will go out before them and bring them in, he's talking about a military hero. That's the same request that the people of Israel made some 350 years later when they asked the Lord for a king like the rest of the nations. Someone who will go out and come in before us. Some hero 
who will conquer our enemies, will help us to subdue the land. And Moses prays for the same thing. Lord, give them a leader, a new leader. And in response to that prayer, the Lord says, I know just the guy. Take Joshua, he says. Joshua will be the new leader for Israel's armies. It's a good thing because he was uniquely qualified. He had been around for a while. He had proven time and time again his usefulness to the nation, his faithfulness to the Lord. You remember his his CV. Joshua, of course, was one of the 12 spies that went in and, and sought out the land. He was one of only two that brought back hope in what God could do. Joshua was a military leader. It was he who led the armies of Israel against Amalek when Moses stood on the hill holding up the staff of victory. The book of Numbers calls Joshua in chapter 11 the servant of Moses from his youth. It means that Joshua knew the spiritual needs of the people. He was there at Moses' side through every twist and turn, through every rebellion that the people encountered. Most of all, verse 18 The Lord calls Joshua a man in whom is the Spirit. I realize that if you have a different translation in front of you, yours might say something different. It might simply leave the word Spirit without the capital letter, almost indicating that he's some sort of dynamic, charismatic leader with a great personality. He's a really spirited guy, that Joshua. But the text in ESV is certainly right. Capital S. He is a man in whom is the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? We know that because whatever other great things we could say about Joshua, we can see through the testimony of Scripture that he was a man whose life demonstrated the power and the conviction that only comes by the working of God's Holy Spirit and those he's calling to himself. Think about it. How else could Joshua stand firm in the Lord's promises at Kadesh when practically the entire nation wanted to abandon ship and go back to Egypt? How else could Joshua accompany Moses in all of his ministry for 40 years and not be utterly depressed at the sin of the nation repeated over and over and over again? How else could Joshua endure the isolation of watching every single one of his peers except Caleb die off one by one, leaving him to walk with the Lord in faithfulness by himself? He did it because he was a man in whom was the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, filling him and and forming him and raising him up to be the new leader that the nation required. He was making Joshua into a leader who himself knew what it was to be led and to be shepherded by his God. I'm sure that if if we wanted to, we could talk about uh, how this principle continues in the church today. We could have a helpful discussion. And when you turn to the New Testament passages that talk about the leaders, talk about uh, the elders and the deacons, you'll find exactly this. That above all, they are to be men of Christian character. They are to be men of demonstrated faithfulness to God. They are to be men who are above reproach, slow to anger, not quarrelsome, not drunkards. The list goes on. You find in the New Testament that the leaders that God's people need are men who are shaped by the work of His Holy Spirit. And we can talk about all the leaders that God's people need, but all of it would only be a reminder 
that all God's people, both the shepherds and the sheep, all God's people ultimately need to be led by the Lord himself. You know, Moses said that the people needed a man who would go out and come in before them. Someone who could shepherd them and bring them into the pastures that God was giving them. And the record in the rest of the Old Testament is very clear. Joshua did exactly that. His ministry was an unmitigated success in terms of the Old Testament. For another 35-ish years, he led the people, and he encouraged the people, and he fought with the people, and he guided them. And near the end of his own life, Joshua chapter 24, verse 28 says, Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. The task was all but done. And funny thing, isn't it, when we turn to the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 4, it tells us that Joshua actually didn't bring them into the final rest that God had for his people. Not because he failed. Not because he was a bad leader. Not because he was an insufficient shepherd, but because God's people were waiting for a greater shepherd. A new shepherd. One more perfect than Moses, better than Joshua. The people of God needed a new leader who, by this point in the sermon, not coincidentally, was also a very old leader. Older than old. You could call him ancient of days. One whose years have no end. Who is always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. The one who always fulfills completely the mission that the Father sent him to accomplish. The point is that in the history of God's dealing with his covenantal community, there are many faithful leaders over his people. And so long as the Lord tarries, we can believe that the Lord will raise up other faithful shepherds of his people. But the only shepherd who can be trusted to bring God's people into their eternal inheritance is the Savior Jesus Christ. He alone is the one who makes one people out of God's children. He alone is the one who gives us hope of salvation. And it is he alone who is able to lead all of us by faith to the heart of the Father. The message here is that we always have to look forward by looking backward. We look to what the Lord is doing by remembering what Christ has already done. We remember who we are in him. We remember who he is making us to be. We remember that he will keep his promises firm to the end for all those who trust in him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious God and Father, we thank you for the Son whom you have sent into the world. We thank you for the promises through the Lord Jesus Christ, never to leave or to forsake, never to turn away the least of those who turn to you. We pray that you would give us faith in your very great and gracious promises. Help us, O oh Lord, to cling to you until the day when we see them all fulfilled in Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen.